Welcome back to Stories Out of Time and Space. We are going to be doing a little bonus episode. And as always, I'm Scott Weatherly, and I am joined by Julian. Julian Darius, how are you doing? Uh, I'm feeling quite good, quite disciplined. Uh, it's not in this film, but it is by will alone I set my mind in motion. Yes, yes. I was worried about doing this. I was, you might say I was fearful, but I realised that, you know, no, fear is the mind killer. So we're going to be jumping into this. Uh, today and yes right we are doing a bonus episode uh, usually you'll find us doing some um, film from sci-fi history going back to whatever era whatever decade but we are doing a brand new film just released we are doing uh, Denis Villeneuve I can't pronounce his name uh, Dune um, so we were going to start with that Let's just, before we get into anything I have got a plot summary and I am going to do it um, okay. It's quite. I've tried to keep it short. <laughs> uh, I, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking like you can really you can summarize the plot in like a couple sentences, but that is going to require answering people's questions about like oh and and what's that about and you know the answering of the questions is going to take two more paragraphs. Yes, well that was sort of <laughs> what I did. I was like, well I need to mention that, and I need to mention this. So. <laughs> We'll see how that sort of translates to this one. But first, before we get into that, first thoughts about uh, having seen Dune um, and also your history of Dune. Yeah, I have a complex history with Dune. Um, I was a kid when the David Lynch version from 1984 came out. I hadn't read the novel. Um, I kind of loved it, even though I didn't think it was a cinematic masterpiece, but it influenced mm. me. Uh, in fact, one of the memories that has come back watching this film is uh my brother and i used to uh, is this going to sound completely psychotic uh not that anything i say doesn't <laughs> but uh we used to uh burn ourselves on the stove to um make ourselves tougher and and i would and i would having seen the 1984 version i would hold my hand as long as i could and say it is by will alone i set my mind in motion uh, and that still is a mantra for me sometimes in times of stress. So, I mean, I have a long history, complicated, <laughs> obviously. And then I went back and read the novels and stuff, not all of them. But um, so, you know, I I don't know how to feel about Dune. I'm not a Dune fanatic like some mm. people are. Um, but I certainly like it more than Terminator and another sort of, you know, other stuff. I want it to be successful. I love Denis Villeneuve. I've been excited about this movie for a long time. Um, having said that, I have complicated mixed views. Uh, what about you? Yeah, it's it's one of those. I read the first book when I was in university. Um, you know, it's one of those periods I read like Lord of the Rings and I read June and that sort of thing. And I enjoyed it. I hadn't read it since. I have now got a copy and I'm going to reread, um, I think, because there's, there's things 
I want to remember and things like you know because this is only part one, so I'm gonna try and read it to catch up. Um, and like you, I'm not you know I'm not a like you say June fanatic. It's not it's not up there as sort of for me as um, uh, a milestone of of sort of like you know literature that I've sort of clung to. Um, I remember the pacing of the book really being a struggle because mm-hmm. um, like reading the first sort of like 150 to 200 pages been like they're not even on Arrakis yet like what's <laughs> going on like <laughs> I'm, I'm well into this book not much is happening and it's sort of um, going back and, and considering that it's like oh yeah I know I now know what this book is it's not you know it's, it's not um, your typical sort of if it, science fiction is is probably sort of you know it is science fiction, it's set in the future, it's set on different planets, but it's going for intrigue. This is probably more akin to like Game of Thrones in some respects than you know than Star Wars or Star Trek. Yeah, um and I think that what sticks with me is like I don't know that it is it's not my my favorite thing ever, but I mean it sticks with me, the designs stick with me, and I love mm. that it's really science fantasy, right? Mm. I mean and while I don't believe the premise of Jodorowsky's Dune, that somehow Jodorowsky was going to have made that film and that would have taken the place of Star Wars and the culture and we'd have a much more adult culture and all of this. I do think there's something, I don't believe that would have happened, but I do think that there's something to the idea of a more adult science fantasy franchise. It's still science fantasy. I mean, it's not hard science fiction. It's not about that stuff, but about ecology, about... Mm what a messiah is about political intrigue about um you know mysticism and religion and all of these things those themes are fantastic and they Mm. they haunt me and i wish that there were a sort of franchise like that that did those things even if it it wasn't hard science fiction no i agree and you know because i I went back and i've watched like the june 84 june and 1984 version and um watching that you're like oh, okay that bit's from the book and that bit's from the book but there's like so much missing and so much the one thing about not, i'm not going to go and review the whole of, of of david lynch's dune but like the first like hour and a half hour and 15 hour and 20 minutes is like of a reasonable pace up until like the um the harkonnen attack on on arrakis and then they're like, and here's 400 other pages. And they just sort of like <laughs> race through it in a montage that would make Rocky proud. Um, yeah. And then it gets to the end. And, you know, it, it's so head spinning, that sort of like third act of uh, of the 1984 film. that It's just, it, it's it's a hard, hard watch. Um, and so watch it going into this one, I was like, you know, how are they going to deal with these pacing issues? Um, you know, is it is it going to be an ensemble film is it just going to be because one of the things as well that sort of like that registers with me is yes it becomes about paul atreides you know he becomes this the you know this figure we'll talk about but it's so packed at the beginning and there are so many characters that i thought oh good they're going to cut it in half which means (coughs) we're actually going to get a lot more of other characters and, and you, you, well, we'll get into it whether we do or not. But you know, it felt like we. I was, I was thinking of. I was thinking this was going to be an ensemble film more than than, than it probably was. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting what what's cut and what's not, and and you know, in some ways, some of those characters like Duncan get way more time in in David Lynch's Dune, which is sort mm-hmm. of staggering. Um, but you know, it's worth keeping in mind as we set this up that this is has been regarded as in in some ways the uh, masterpiece of science fiction that could never be filmed, <clears throat> and the mm-hmm. failure of the David Lynch movie was attributed among a lot of other things to the utter inability to ground this world that uh the novel takes like you said 200 pages of just like history lessons and you know (laughs) 10 page philosophical discussions and things like this and they do it in a in an interesting way here that we'll discuss famously the lynch film has many cuts that try to address this and begin with this long monologue and you know um, it's hard to set up all of these aspects of this world before you get into any of the action or the drama. Well, what, one of the things that's interesting is, and you know my feelings on prequels. I think, you know, by their very nature, they are redundant um, if, you've told, if you've initially told a good story. And I'm not saying that June isn't a good story, but this world is so massive, this, 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 the, the, the galaxy, the Imperium, that you sort of like, yeah, you could do um, a prequel. And I, I haven't read other books, so I don't know. Like, you know, obviously Frank Herbert wrote some, and then his, his son and other people have contributed. I don't know. That's, that may have happened. You know, there may be prequels. Mm-hmm. But as, as in a film, if you know, this could be quite easily. You could say, right, actually, before before we get to June, you know, the the story. We, you know, you can still have Arrakis. Like, well, yeah, we're going to do an entire film that sets up a bunch of other stuff. Like, you could have another film that does all the setup before you even start this film, and it would fill in, you know, stories about, like, the Bene Gesserit and mm-hmm. um, the relationship between the Harkonnen and the Emperor or, or the Harkonnen and the Atreides. And, like, it, it, you know, like... All that's been done in novels, right? Oh, oh yeah, uh, I'm sure. Anderson yeah, yeah. And, and Herbert's son have, have, done, have done all of that. In fact, there's probably more prequels than there were original frank herbert novels so so let's hear the uh the summary okay let's get into the plot then here we go so in the distant future the human race is spread across the universe in a galactic imperium the imperium is ruled by an emperor and governed by a series of powerful families two of the most powerful families are the cruel harkonnens led by vladimir harkonnen stellan skarsgård and the more progressive, led by Leto Atreides, Oscar Isaac. The Harkonnens have had an, have an advantage within the Imperium as they control the planet Arrakis, where they harvest spice. Spice is a product used for space navigation as well as many other things, including extending psychic abilities for the religious order, the Bene Gesserit. It has been decided by the Emperor that control of Arrakis will transfer from the Harkonnens to the Atreides. In order to do so, Duke Leto... His son, Paul, Timothy Chalamet, head concubine and Paul's mother, Lady Jessica, Rebecca Ferguson, along with their household, will move to Arrakis from their stronghold planet of Caladan. Mining spice is a tough job. The indigenous people of the planet, the Fremen, fight to protect their planet from being harvested. Also, the planet is populated by huge sandworms which create the spice, but are also incredibly dangerous and will destroy anything travelling on the surface that they can find. 
Duke later understands that the only way he is able to successfully transfer and keep up spice production is by making the Fremen an ally. To start this process, he sends one of his most trusted troops, Duncan Idaho, played by Jason Momoa, to find them and start negotiations. In the meantime, Paul is coming of age and the Bene Gesserit are taking an interest in him, as he is starting to have visions of a young woman, Zendaya, and even his own death. He is the product of generations of manipulation to create a prophesied saviour figure, the Kwisatz Haderach. Paul has been trained in many disciplines, believing that he was to prepare it was to pre- prepare him to rule House Atreides. The Bene Gesserit do not trust him, as he should have been born a girl, and so start putting him to the test. Moreover, when he reaches Arrakis, Paul notes that the Fremen also have this saviour figure as part of their law, more Bene Gesserit manipulation. As the Atreides family settle in, they find that spice production is going to be hampered by the poor equipment that has been left. In addition to this, the Harkonnens have their own plots and intend to kill mem- kill off the members of the Atreides family. Some attempts are made but are unsuccessful, and so with the support of the Emperor, the Harkonnens invade Arrakis, destroying the Atreides family and its army. However, it was agreed that Paul and his mother would not be harmed, as they are too important at this stage. The Harkonnens decide that while they cannot harm them, that does not mean the desert cannot, and plan to leave them to die out there. Using the powers learned from the Bene Gesserit order, Paul and Lady Jessica managed to escape into the Arrakis Desert. Last paragraph, don't worry. Travelling the, de- traveling the desert, they eventually come across a group of Fremen, led by Stilgar, Javier Bardem. Stilgar states that they can come with them, but a challenge comes from within the group, and Paul must fight the challenger to prove his worth. Paul is skilled, but fears killing the challenger, giving several attempts for the man to yield. When he does... Uh, when he does not, Paul reluctantly kills him, and Stilgar acknowledges that by their law, Paul and Lady Jessica can now be considered Fremen. The group start to trek across the desert and an uncertain future as credits roll. Yeah, <laughs> that's quite a summary. I mean, I would I would say the, the basic plot could be summed up as the Emperor gives the spice planet Arrakis to House Atreides, taking mm-hmm. it from House Harkonnen. In fact, this is a trap, and Harkonnen and the Emperor are going to attack and destroy House Atreides, which they do. However, Paul escapes and goes into the desert with his mom. Yeah. The end. That's really just, <laughs> yeah. that's the plot. And then you have to ask, like, well, what is this spice thing? Well, you know, yeah. what are these houses? Okay. <laughs> Yeah. And that was what it started with. Originally, I was like, I can sum this up very quickly. Mm-hmm. But then it's things like, well, why is Paul so important? Like, Why am I spending so much time with Timothy Chalamet? Well, he's actually considered to be this prophesied character, but they don't trust him. Well, why don't they trust him? Well, because Lady Jessica was supposed to have a girl, but because of her love for Duke Leto, she gave him a boy. It's like, man, like, all of this is in the book, and it's all explained. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, is it's it also how much do I explain of this Benny Jesuit order of <laughs> witches, you know, that are, that are sort of all female and, you know, in the, in the novel, it's a bigger deal that she's not married to Duke Leto. Uh, she's a concubine. And so they have Paul is in fact an illegitimate son, although his, his father treats him otherwise. So, you know, like, is that worth mentioning? I mean, that's a bigger deal in the book than it is in, yeah. the, in the film. I think that would be, uh, you can see the times playing out in some of these things. Like, the fact he's illegitimate, like, yeah, would I don't think it would work 
in mm. 2021 like you know you play that and you're like well what does it matter like marriage is such an outdated mm. mode of blah blah, blah. Uh, and so there's certain things i think they've dropped and some yeah. of it's quite sensible well, well um, one of the number one thing they've dropped is that baron harkonnen you know if you remember the lynch film he's much more obese he's got um you know sores on his face yeah and he's also a homosexual pederast. So yeah. <laughs> having the gay character, you know, molesting and killing boys wh and while having an AIDS blood, era yeah. sore on his face. I mean, yeah, that has not aged well. Um, mm. You know, and so I think it's it's wise to eliminate that. One of the things that they can't eliminate or, or that I, I know that Denis Villeneuve wants to address is this idea of the sort of white savior complex. And yes. in fact, in the novel, it's not at all clear that he is the Messiah. Um, you know, that there is one Messiah, that these prophecies are true in an objective mm. sense. The novel is much more a sort of interrogation of what does it mean to be a Messiah? And Paul plays into this for his own purpose and to find his destiny. That well, not is just much more. I mean, how do you get that in a two and a half hour movie that's doing 60 other things? Well, this is one of the interesting things because it's not just Paul in the novel. If I remember rightly, it's his mother as well. Hmm. Like, she's clearly a part, you know, she's, she's been trained by the Jesuit, she's a part of the order. Um, and so she's a part of these manipulations. And if I remember when they get to Arrakis and stuff, and when everything happens, she's the one that like, she, she continues to manipulate things and people to keep bolstering Paul to become this sort of like to protect them. Um and so yeah that sort of seems that's that's sort of gone from the thing. Which is interesting because they also want to show and there's parts of this where they're not setting him up as a Neo or mm -hmm. do you know what he's he like Timothy Chalamet is he is gonna be the savior character in a sense, but he's not like Whoa! Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not, I, I was going to say that, but it's not like he's not like a pure savior. You know, it's not like mm -hmm. he's going to turn up and everything's going to be all right. It, 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 it seems a lot more con controversial. Like there's, you know, I was thinking of like Dancing with Wolves and, and all these other sort of films, the, the White Savior film, and um, it does sort of go, yeah, it doesn't quite play anymore. And and but then the book didn't think that either. Like Paul isn't isn't Neo. You know, he's not Superman. Um, and yeah. yeah. But, I mean, you know, I love the beginning of this film. Mm. Uh, I, there's the opening narration uh, by Chani, who talks about, I mean, the opening line is, you know, how beautiful Arrakis is. Um, you know, it's just the shot of the desert. I mean, everything there is working. Um, you know, that stuff, that grounding, and she says this line about uh we're going to find out who our next oppressors are yes and that's fantastic right you know this grounding you open the film with the native american experience right yeah you you know now then that is lost as the film goes on because that's not really the focus of the film um and and then by the time uh paul is arriving on arrakis you see just scores of of Fremen and, and others lined up chanting that he's a messiah and it's like well Did Lady that, Jessica cause that I mean yeah well there's two there's two things really in that that one you say about the opening monologue and it does it says about um the uh who will be our next oppressor 
And then it cuts to Paul in bed mm-hmm. of him waking up. So like it's telling you straight away, like, yeah, no, like <laughs> here, here is your the, the next oppressor. Like, we're not gonna hide this. Uh, you know, you might be considering him as the white savior, but you know, he's gonna he's basically gonna make a complete hash of it. Um uh, but you say about and this was the interesting I actually thought this was more interesting because there was a dropped line. There's a couple of drop lines in this film where they sort of like obviously it's two and a half hours, but they've got very much focus on things and they want to give certain scenes a lot more screen time. But when they do get to Arrakis, there's clearly two types of Fremen. Mm-hmm. And 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 this there's a uh, when he um he goes out to the guy who's tending the palm trees, uh, which again I love that scene because the guy's like it takes this much that's five lives a day for one tree for that much water and that, I think that's really cool. But you see the Pete there's Fremen are all sort of reaching through the gate and he's like what's that all about and they, the guy tells him and he's like oh, okay so they believe that and it's and it's then sort of hinted at that that's well, even b- b- sorry, before that, they've said, oh, they've been manipulating the people of Arrakis. Like, these things have been laid. This new law, this, this religious sort of prophesy has been laid into their law. But that doesn't mean they all believe it, because then when you meet Stilgar and Chani and the others, they're of the other opinion, like, oh, no, we know this is all a bunch of crap. Like, we get it. Um, yeah, and know. also... Uh... You know, the doctor who's the ecologist, who's a friend, yes. whose gender has been changed from the novel. <clears throat> but yeah, she, she sort of seems to sort of like shift, doesn't she? Because she doesn't, she, she's a wet, she knows of these prophecies. She's probably grown up with these prophecies and this, this law, mm-hmm. but she doesn't really believe it. She thinks it's nonsense. But then all of a sudden, like he's turned up and he's got like the still suit on and he's put it on like in a specific knows way. How to do it. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, like, yeah, I, I know how to put trousers on. Oh, well done. You must be the savior. Um, but like there's these things, and you can see that throughout the film, there's a few of these scenarios where things happen, where people are like, well, I don't believe it, but this this person does seem to fit this criteria. And so they sort of, it, so it gives them the second guess, which is what they're supposed to be. Manip- like, so even then, like Lady Jessica and stuff is supposed to manipulate that. And it's like, yes, yes, it is. Um, so I, lo- I, I kind of like the fact that there was those people there and is that a comment on people believing everything they see? Fake news? I don't know. Whatever you want to do. Manipulated by greater powers, all that kind of stuff. But there are others that are like, no, it's crap. It's nonsense. You know, there is no prophecy. There's just us trying to survive on this planet. Well, I, yeah. I like that idea. And I, I like that you're talking about. And I, I like the idea that our understanding of the world is defined by the parameters that have been given to us. And mm. so... You know, I mean, if you are into conspiracy theories and somebody says like, well, do lizard people run the government? You know, you're like, no, that's not true. But then you see a few things. It's like, yeah, I could see why the lizards would want that. You know, so we look for what we are looking for. If you're told, Mm -hmm. you know, A might be the case, then it becomes a binary proposition, A, not A. And that becomes the psychological terrain by which you encounter new facts and new information. Mm. So, I mean, I like that idea. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think that it's really, you know, teased out enough, despite the two and a half hour runtime for half yeah. the book. No, I agree. It's something I just sort of, um, I was taken away. I, I took away from it, but I understood it's, it's not 
front and centre. Like it's not as teased out as I'd like it. But th- th- this comes to another uh, a point actually I want to make uh, before we forget. So we're talking about the people of Arrakis, the Fremen, and we get to know quite a bit about them. Like you know, we we get bits and pieces about them, and and um, they are native to this. Well, they're not native, sorry, because they've just been there for generations. And, um, you know, they're affected by spice, blah, blah, blah. We know stuff about them. But we also find out, and we know that like, the, the Atreides come from Caladan. Mm-hmm. And, and they are very good. They are the, the, the white hats, as it were. Like There's no hiding that. Like They are the good guys. And then you find the Harkonnen planet, and they are, it's basically going to sort of like some dystopian sort of like, you know, raining all the time and all kind of, that kind of crap. One of the things I was designed by H.R. Geiger. Yes, yeah. Yeah. One of the things I was curious about, and I was hoping that they would do in this film that they don't, is you don't see common populace of those those planets to make a comparison to the Fremen. Do you know what I mean? So I wanted to Mm -hmm. see, like, okay, well, if I'm going to see Planet Atreides, Planet Caladan, you know, how do the the Atreides treat the people of that planet that they that they're ruling on? You know, are they free? Is it a farming world? Are they happy? Is it is it well populated? Is it you know? And then go into the Harkonnen world. Is it like what you know? Is it like entering Brazil or some you know or like Dark City or something? You know, how, what what's happening on those worlds? So that when I get to meeting the Fremen, I've got this idea of they're going to project that onto those people. You get told it, but I don't get to see it in in the film. Yeah, I mean, I would like that, too. Um, You know, of course, it's a runtime issue. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the closest we get is in the uh, sort of cemetery, which is very nicely designed on Caladan, where Leto talks to Paul. um, And, you know, that stuff is really good. It's all working. And Leto says that they've ruled through air power and sea power, and they're going to have to cultivate desert power on Arrakis. Um, That implies their there's been conflict on that planet, mm. right? I mean, this is still very much an imperial power that yeah. is, that is in fact, the next oppressors. They're just the, the myth of the good imperial power. You know, we're going to negotiate with the Native Americans yeah. instead of wiping them out. <laughs> yeah, and I, I was looking for, like, you know, comp- uh, analogs and comparisons, and... Um, you know, you can take any any imperial idea, like you know, the British Empire is a very good example of this. Like you know, yes, we entered the Middle East and we did incredible, you know, in, in India and you know, uh, parts of North Africa and and uh, Central Africa and all this other stuff. Like you know, did did very similar things. We were like, yes, you're a very noble people. We like the resources you've had, so we're going to kill you. Um, yeah, and we did it in the Philippines and you know, all over yeah. the world too. We got started a little later and, you know, and wanted to compete with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's a, it's a hobby we appear to have given up at least in this country. Mm. Um, you know, not for want of trying, but. Uh, well, yeah. maybe we could, we could pull back for a moment and say like, what is, what is your impression of the film overall um, uh, of this Denis Villeneuve version you know, watching it from start to finish, how does it work for you? It does work. Um, I think I think it has. I think this film is good. It works, and I I really enjoyed it. I, I had a really good time with the film. I think a lot of it works. 
it's one of those though it, it, it clearly felt like part of a story um character arcs weren't complete you know weren't even part way through you know um character relationships and you know stuff it, it felt incomplete and i understand that and you know, anyone says well there's gonna be a part two yes and i know you hate these films but the lord of the rings films at least when they did that they were like oh we've got this ending that's going to end with a cliffhanger but you're going to get a resolution to at least these kinds of stories um you're going to get these arcs and you know this redemption so you get like boromir's redemption and all this other stuff like you're going to at least walk away saying i know there's more story but at least i've seen something happen something happened And I think the biggest problem with this this film is the biggest event in this film is the invasion of uh, of, Ara- of Arrakis, yeah. And then it and it keeps going. And although I'm enjoying the initially, like when he's fighting, uh, when when Paul has that fight at the end, I I am looking at my watch and going like, when does this thing end? Like, how are they going to get to a resolution? Because it really isn't at a climax point. And then it sort of just stops, and you're like, oh. I, I get what you're doing, but it just sort of like it does it. It's, it this film peters out, and I think that was the problem. It's sort of like, uh... yeah. My my first impression is phenomenally positive, and I rewatched this a second time to do this podcast, so I've not seen this twice. And I think it starts beautifully with that mm. with that uh, narration, and then. Everything you see, it's like, okay, here's Denny Villeneuve. Here's your budget. Every single, I mean, let's just say there is no object in this universe that is not designed to the nth degree. Yeah. I mean, every background, every uh, column in a building, uh, you know, everything that the, uh, you know, sort of planes that they use, the, every shot is majestic and beautiful. This looks like a lived-in world. This looks like a just like no expense was paid to design this thing mm. down to the sheets on the bed. Um, it's just astounding to look at. And so initially I'm wowed. I'm brought into this universe. And it's about 20 minutes in where that starts to disappear for me. And some of it is the exposition. I'm thinking in that 20 minutes, like, good, you're going for the emotive sort of resonance of these characters. And we get a little bit of exposition and it's done well, but that exposition just continues. And now it's like, okay, now I get to watch the fight scene. And like, what is that fight scene doing? It's introducing the shield technology and it's introducing the idea that Paul is training, right? Okay, fine. You know, to to a lesser degree, it's introducing, I guess, Gurney. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's not doing enough. And it goes on for, you know, five minutes. And I know you need a little bit of action at that point. But I just keep getting pulled out of the film. And by the end, I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I, I have that sort of like feeling that you do of it being less than the sum of its parts. And yes. You know, this is, and I love Denny Villeneuve. Denny Villeneuve could film two people talking in the kitchen, and I would just want to watch it on mute to just look at how beautiful everything is. Yeah, um, if you watch Prisoners, he's done that. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you know, and I mean, I'm 
flabbergasted by how good uh, the Blade Runner 2049 is. Mm. Um, but the, the other thing about this is, you know, in terms of coming out of this and having that sort of less than the sum of its parts feeling is I don't understand this movie. I yes. don't understand this movie on any level. And I want to. I'm a fan of Dune. I love these themes. So you were talking about, like, what happens, how you structure this. If you're going to shoot half of the story, right, you have a classic opportunity to do a sort of, like, declining arc followed by an upward, upward arc. Mm-hmm. The first, the declining arc is all you need to do, the climax is we're attacked on Arrakis, right? It was all a trap. My whole family is wiped out, and I'm left to wander in the desert in the denouement, right? We've lost everything. But there's this promise of, you know, continuing. And then in a second, you rise up and you take over the planet by the end. So there's this, you know, it's it's the first half of Superman 2, the second half of Superman 2. It's, it's Daredevil born again. It's the, mm. you know, decline all the way down, rise all the way up. Okay, well, that should be what this movie is. Instead, you have this attack halfway through. I don't really feel like that's the climax. Uh, And then, you know, you have all of these scenes of him going out into the desert. And there's, you know, so much stuff there and so many other characters. And by the end, I feel like, you know, I I don't you were talking about not having the sort of character arc. That should be the character arc of I've lost everything. We've lost everything, and now I'm living, you know, with the Fremen. It just, it's structured so strangely, and I don't feel as if, you know, it, it tells that story. Well, what, one of the things I thought was that I struggled with, that, that third act. Well, I don't know, like, is it fifth act? No, is it a five-act structure? It's hard to tell how they're, they're structuring it. But one of the things I found, I find that last act really cold in in uh, you know emotional and it's bizarre because i think there are times in this where like you know timothy Ch- timothy chalamet is good you know he's he's a good actor you know he's got a charm he's got a charisma you know he's a good looking guy like he's got he's got the package right he, he can do his stuff and also you've been introduced to like oscar isaac and oscar isaac's playing this fatherly figure as the sort of you know the, the good duke atre- uh, nato atreides so when he dies when when um Leto, Leto was taken out, like, and you know, you you you've sort of they've garnered this sort of relationship between him, you know, between Leto and Lady Jessica of like he says like I should have married you, and they clearly sleep in the same bed. They've got a relationship. Yes, they're not married, but they've got this relationship. Like they trust each other, and more. Um, but when he dies, there's no like emotional ramification for that. They just like piss off into the desert, and they're like. Then then, it, then they're sat in a tent and there's not like there's no there's no emotion about it, there's no grief there's no like you know this should be like they are abandoned right like you said they have been stripped to their lowest point mm-hmm. they are trapped in the desert which is dangerous they're likely to die if not of th- you know of thirst or uh, exposure then the sandworms whatever people they love have been killed you know um, everyone almost <laughs> yeah like as far as they know duncan idaho's gone gurney's gone that you know duke uh, uh, leto's gone yet there's no sense of loss in the characters and and so when they face up to the fremen and he beats that guy 
there's no sort of sense of like he's worked through something or good or bad. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. For me, and again, I, I know I'm a sod for doing this, but like they should be in that desert and it should feel desperate. Like it should yeah. feel like absolute agony for them. There should even be questions of like, why do we carry on? Like, yeah, let a sandworm take us. Like, what is the, where are we going? What is the point? And have that conversation. Like, they sort of touch on it a little bit. So, when it, you know, that killing, that fight at the end should be him making a decision to live. Mm-hmm. Of like, no, I can't, I am the Kwisak Hadarak, or I am going to be more. Well, at least I, I will survive, right? Yeah. I mean, I will, I will live with this violent, strange people who I'm yeah. scared of. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you, there is a lot of talk about Leto's father, who who died apparently gored by a bull. And so, like, when yes. you see that that bull's head... Repeatedly, you know, yes. I, I, right. I, got I, mean, that, I got that plenty of times. Yeah, so, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of sort of ominous stuff that he's going to die. And, and he has a conversation with Lady Jessica about, you know, take care of Paul. And, yeah, I mean, you know, in the novel, it's much clearer that they know this is a trap. Although mm. that trap doesn't really make sense. I mean, it's no, one have, of these I things. Have, where, yeah, I, I have questions about the trap, but yeah. Well, we can we can return to that. I do too. But you're right that I mean, I think the movie has so many scenes in which it's setting up the sadness of losing Leto and losing your father. But then it just doesn't sort of deliver. It's very strange. It's like he's gone. You know, Timothy Chalamet looks uh, depressed or looks down for five minutes and then, you know, or five seconds, and then it's on to surviving. Like you said, there's no question of whether we're going to survive. And I think part of the problem is that this leans too heavily on the prophecy. Mm -hmm. And I think a little bit of the dreams, a little bit of that prophecy goes a long way. And I think that this, you know, you think what is, if we're only going to film half of this story, what is that story? How do we make that a complete story? I've suggested how to do it. It's a downward arc where, as you say, you know, it, it, it's I've lost everything. I was the heir apparent to this empire. And mm. now basically that empire is destroyed. Or at least it's king. The king is dead. All of our main guys are dead. Uh, we've effectively lost everything. And I am, you know, stranded in this this murderous desert with these people who I don't understand. But, you know, the, that's the story. That's what should be mm. the story of the first half, if you're going to make it feel like a complete story. Um, it doesn't do that. And instead, it leans so heavily on this these dreams. Dreams in film never work. No. I mean, they're always either, like, um, Big Lebowski just sort of, like, an excuse to do something totally unrelated, whatever we want that's unrelated or every horror movie where it's like, you know, oh, here's a really frightening idea. We can't do that in continuity. So make it a <laughs> or it's like prophecy and important mm. and, and that never that stuff never works in film. And so, you know, it sort of has to lean into that to tell you, don't worry, the story cuts off, but we're going to gesture toward this other thing. But that other thing isn't defined. I don't know. None of that really works for me. Yeah, I, I agree with that. No, I, the dream thing, or the the um, it, like you say, if you're going to do prophecy dreams, you have to be pointed. You have to be. I, 
there's cryptic, right? Be, you can be cryptic, but you have to be just cryptic enough that the audience is going to get it. Um, and, you know, the repeated viewing of Zendaya again, fine. You know, we all know she's in this film. She's all over the poster, right? And she'll definitely be in part two, right? She's a massive part of the story. But th those repeated visions of her but just become a distraction that like they lit at times like the, the story like literally stops for you to go and now they're going to look at some mouse in a little hole or like she's going to look beautiful against the sunset and it's like fine but like but that doesn't even pay off in this film yeah <laughs> like i get you've got to say that but like her, him meeting her and this was the the, the problem and i i feel this is a, a, a villain of issue he is so anti-blockbuster in his sensibilities. I, I understand it and I, I get it that he doesn't want to give you too much of a of a rah-rah moment. So if you're going to give me those different um, uh, visions and things, right, of, of Zandaya and all the other things, when he meets them at the end, it needs to be an oh shit moment. Mm -hmm. But it's not. It's really flat. Like she just says, you know, I wouldn't have let you kill my friends. And he's like, oh, all right. Like <laughs> he just goes, oh, oh shit, you're there. All right. Well, that's that's a surprise. There's nothing of like you know it lingering on her face to be like, oh, this is who who is this woman that you're the woman I've been I've been, you know. Yeah. Well, he sort of knows who who she is. But you're right. I mean, I I wanted him to just sort of like stare awkwardly, like you're the yeah. woman I've been dreaming about and the other thing is that this i mean this is more true in, in the lynch version but this sort of like there's always the risk of like is this a love story of like i'm all i'm a, all alone in email but i dream yeah. of you know this mystic beautiful woman who i'm going to meet and then he meets her and it's like again no, you're right it's flat there's no reaction it's uh, uh yeah, and I don't, I don't know, I, I and I, because that comes again with the ending, like you say, that fight and him winning the fight should feel like a tragic victory, you know, like it should feel. It, it, they even say it in the film that that Paul Atreides has to die, and that from that the prophesied one will rise, you know, the Kwisatz Haderach will rise from that. Okay, brilliant. But it's so subtle. Like, you know, they, they try to show it you with like, some whispering going on. In the background, as he sort of like, he takes the fall and then he kills the guy. And then he's like, we are now Fremen and we shall go on. It's like, yeah, but it needs, you need to have like, you either need to feel something for that moment. You either need to feel triumphant because he's come out of a tragedy and is now taking a step forward towards something great. Or you need to feel it. You need to end this film and feel sorrow because he has broken away from something and is taking a step towards tragedy. It does not do that. It just goes. He stands yeah. up and kills someone. You're like, what? What are you trying to tell me with this ending? Like, is it good or is it bad? Should I should I dread part two or should I feel should I feel you know? It's. Yeah, he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to commit to a trajectory, and it, it sort of bothers me. I know what you're saying, and and I think that like in Blade Runner twenty forty nine, 
you know, I feel terrible about the death of his uh, VR girlfriend. Mm. I mean, you know, and that is not done as an, oh, my God, this is sad. I mean, it's got those, those visually it's doing that. But it doesn't have a moment in which the main character breaks down and cries and looks at a photo of her and all those stereotypes. Villeneuve wants to avoid that stuff. And I don't mind ambiguity. I don't need to know whether I should be excited about the next one or not, if I should be dreading it. But, I mean, that fight scene is so flat. And yeah. I think even the conflict with um, the the heroic sacrifice and escaping this, you know, uh, water container sort of thing that has been built in the desert doesn't need to be there at all. Um, you know, that just goes on and it's very flat and you think, why are we even watching this? Um, and so by the time you get to that fight, you know, it just feels like one more thing, one more fight scene. And I, I would be very happy if we were talking about the sense of like, I've lost everything. I don't know if I can go on. My dad's dead. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm going into the desert to beg these violent, unknowable people to keep me and my mom alive. And mm. now they won't even help me. They want to eat my mom. You know? yeah. And, and I, now a guy has challenged me to a fight that I don't know that I will win. And I, and I don't even want to do this, but I've got to do this if my mom is going to survive and if I'm going to survive. Not that I necessarily you know, want to, but that it should be, like you say, I mean, it should be hard. There should be some emotion there. And instead, suddenly Paul is a ninja in that fight, which I get that he's had training before, but he's mm. so absurdly good. And I don't know how to feel about this death. It's just like, okay, well, you're with us now. And it doesn't help that the last line that Paul says is the worst performed line by Timothy Chalamet, like, yeah. where he's like, if you'll have us. And he just yeah. looks so, you just, I want to punch his face at that moment. Yeah. And I and I like him. Oh, yeah, there are several lines in this film and they, they stand out because of, because there's so much good in this film that when there's a blip, it seems to stand out massively. And that is one of them. I agree. Uh, the other one's the very end of the film is Zendaya when she's like, you know, onto new beginnings and that sort of kind of thing. And you're like, oh my God, like that's just, that's cheesy crap. Like you've done so well right up until that last minute. Um, that fight though, this is the point. Like, and again, and, and this is my sensibility. So it, this may be on, on me and I'm going to use a reference now. That is so unrelated to June, but it has. I have a point. That final fight, in fact, two fights in this, but that final fight where he's fighting uh, for fighting that guy who challenges him. When I came out, I I thought of Rocky, right, of a Rocky Balboa fight. And by that I mean there's a lot of times they'll shift in that fight, like Rocky Three. You know, the point of the fight is uh, the, the 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 last fight of that against Clubber Lang. He knows that he has to get Mr. T angry because like, that's when he gets careless and that's when he can take advantage and that's how he wins the fight. Fine. You see that playing out and there's an emotionality to that fight where, you know, he's sort of doing that. He's taking the hits. He's getting it all riled up. And I love that fight. Right. There's, there's things like that that happens in like Rocky Balboa from 20, 2006. Like they do something similar. 
And there's, there's this thing of like, and I'm, I don't want him to go down on one arm, it to go black and white, and for Timothy Chalamet to see, you know, Burgess Meredith being like, you know, just one more round. Get I don't up, need that. Dude. Yeah, yeah, I don't need that. But at some point, he t- he attempts three times to give the guy a chance to yield. You know, he gets a blade to his throat or to one of his other arteries, and he's like, he's telling him, like, I could kill you. And it's not until Stilgar says, well, you've got to kill him, or this, you know, one of you's got to die. And then the acceptance of that is so flat and so quick. He's like, oh, all right, bang. Like, there should still be a reluctance there where he, like, he, t- he takes the hit, he goes down, gets back up and does it. And I want that to be like, this, the killing of this man, because they keep telling you repeatedly, this is, he's never killed a person before, he's never killed a person before. All right, tell me then, that, or show me that killing this person takes something from Paul. Like it should, it should be a decision. Like there should be a moment of like, if I have to, I'm gonna have to do this, but I don't want to. Like make it, make it take a toll on him, but it doesn't. It just and and what's so frustrating is like the whole film has been leading to these things, you know. Um, and I don't know if it's well. I I think Denny Villeneuve has trouble with action. He's great on some of the scenes, but some of the action in this really falters. And the other one, I laughed. I was in the cinema and I chuckled at another scene when I completely wasn't supposed to. And I don't blame the actor because I, it's weird because I've seen him in other things. He's better. And it is Jason Momoa. His fight in that thing you're talking about, the water thing where you find that they actually can cultivate plants and they're going to do terraforming. He only locks the doors and he gets trapped in that corridor, right? And he's fighting them. And this is the, and it's all fine. It's all very good standard stuff. Like they've clearly got a good fight for t- uh, choreographer, whatever. It's such a cliche, but you know, oh, it's God, like, yeah. here's the lock the door. I'll hold them off. Yeah, hold the door. Right. It's, it's literally, yeah, it's, it's, it's total cliche. But he gets, he gets taken down and then he gets up and it's sort of like behind them, like some horror film. But the way he does it, like, I was like, Arnie would have done that in the 80s. Like, it feels so out of place and so big compared to everything else that's been going on. Um, and again, going back to that thing, like, and then he's killed, but it doesn't feel like that first fight has taken any toll on him. So he just sort of goes at it again. You know, like, hang on. Like, you don't know how to shoot action. You know, this should be a real that, that second blowout should be like a real effort. Like, you know, he's really holding them off. Like, this should be his last ditch. Like, he knows he's going down, he's bleeding out. It should feel like something. And then unfortunately, when his head hits the sand, I'm, i I chuckled. I was like, Pfft. like that was silly. Mm-hmm. And that's unfortunately that all I felt for that third act from that point on was like, this feels silly. You've lost me a little bit. Yeah, I, I wouldn't go quite that far, but I feel the same way. And I feel like that's such a cliche in a mm. movie that is avoiding cliches. Um, to the to the point about the the final fight with Paul and the and the Fremen dude. Um, you know, one of the things that the Lynch film does well is it uses Paul's narration to even in places where it doesn't fit the novel to sort of have him give his emotional response to something where Mm. he might be stoic, but he'll say, my name is a killing word, you know, like, and and you have this like gut punch kind of like people are, are, you know, 
killing in my name, literally, mm. right? Yeah. Um, you know, Paul, that fight isn't hard enough for Paul. You know, Paul doesn't win because he's underestimated, you know, because the whole point is he's not really the Messiah, right? I mean, mm. this, is a, this is a story we tell ourselves. Suddenly he's a ninja and he's totally stoic about everything. You don't have to use that line of narration to drive home the idea that they, you know, he's underestimated and that's why he's able to win, which is just not the case. He's just superior. Um, and also that our introduction to the Fremen, we're joining the Fremen and we're doing so by killing a guy who I have no yeah. reason to think is, he might be a little martial, a, a little, you know, um, aggressive, but he isn't a bad guy. Um, and I'm, the very first thing I'm doing is murdering somebody as I've escaped this carnage. And if you can't do that in narration, the reason we resort to narration is to drive those emotional points home that need to be told. If you want to avoid that, that's great. I applaud you. Mm. I have no doubt Denis Villeneuve wants to avoid that. So you need to communicate it visually. You yeah. need to communicate it in other ways. And none of that is communicated. I agree with you 100% about the Jason Momoa fight. Um, but I would say that's that's part of what I don't understand about this movie. I mean, I do not for the life of me. I never have understood. I mean, I've looked forward to this movie. I do not understand $165 million to a, one of my favorite directors, but who just came off the bomb of Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> and we're going to give him $165 million to direct the first half of Dude. Well, what if it fails? Um, and then, and, and wouldn't it be better if we just directed the whole thing in you know, Lord of the Rings style, just back to back? I know he wanted to do that. The studio mm -hmm. said no. And, and kudos to Time Warner for giving him this amount of money and this amount of freedom. Uh, kudos to them. Time Warner believes in directors in a way that Disney does not. I mean, that's wonderful. However, I still don't get this movie. I don't get, looking at the script, I would not <laughs> say, I, let's throw $165 million at it. And your point about Jason Momoa, I don't understand what Dave Bautista is doing in this. I don't understand what Jason Momoa is doing in this. I don't understand Josh Brolin. I don't understand. I mean, Zendaya is going to be important to the next one, but her job in this is to look pretty against the desert. You know, I mean, I don't understand why Jason Momoa is in this. And I'm not saying he's a horrible actor or anything. I don't understand why Dave Bautista is in this. I, I, you know, they're not doing any of the things that they're, you know, I mean, you, you know, if you're like an Aquaman fan, you're like, all right, I'm going to go see Jason Momoa kick some ass. Uh, you've, just, well, here's you've, that just, scene. you've just, you've just answered your question. Why are these people in this film? I'll tell you why they're in this film. Because when they were casting it, someone's gone, right, you've got <laughs> Timothy Chalamet, who's been doing indie films as your main character. You've got Rebecca Ferguson, who, whilst good, you know, I, 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 think I've, I don't think I've seen a performance I don't like her in. She's very good. But she's not a household name. You've got Oscar Isaacs for The Mums, you know, coming in. Fine. He, he's a known actor. He's good. You know, all fine. Um, but we're still doing a sci-fi film, and I'm not hearing... Like you know, tentpole names. I'm not hearing. You, I can hear the the executives are going like, "Well, you're right, okay." Well, I'm not hearing 
Who who's on the poster that they're going to go? I know that guy. All right. Well, we're going to have Jason Momoa. You're done. Right. Let's have Jason Momoa. He's going to be on the poster. You're about Zendaya. Right. That's for the kids. The kids like Zendaya. She's done. You know. Uh, she's in Spider Man. Right. Great. Get her in. Um, <laughs> you know. Uh, and and, and uh, you say about uh, Josh Brolin. I actually kind of like Josh Brolin. Like when he plays grump, when he plays grumpy old man. You know, like No Country for Old Men and 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 things. Um, he's brilliant as George W. Bush. I, yes. you know, he he's a solid actor. Yeah. So the cast. But what does he do in this movie? <laughs> well, yeah. The thing is, as well, like he's Gurney's there for a purpose, isn't he? Like you know, he's the old guard. He's supposed to be there, but like, um. I'm trying to sort of spoil this because I, I know things about the future of the books mm-hmm. that I haven't read, but I, I just know through osmosis of other things. Like, Gurney isn't dead. Yeah. And so he will be back. Like, you know, because mm-hmm. you don't see him die. And so like, he's likely to come back. But I, I don't know. I like him as a presence. I kind of like Josh Brolin as a sort of a presence. And him and, um, and Oscar Isaac work well together on screen. Um, the the one but Dave Batista well Dave Batista's worked with Denny Villeneuve, Villeneuve before he's in Blade Runner twenty forty nine of all of them of of those sort of if it's between him and Jason Momoa mm-hmm. I like Dave Batista in this he's him as as the Beast um uh, as the Harkonnen next to Stellan Skarsgård like scared like terrifies me like he's awesome like mm-hmm. he is he's huge. You know he's he looks massively intimidating, um, and then when he's there, like you know, basically like beheading soldiers and stuff and doing his bit, like I'm like, oh yeah, you know, you are I I take you and I'm not taking out the film. I go, that's Dave Batista. Like no, you are like a horror mm-hmm. figure. Like whenever the Harkonnens are in this, like it leans into the horror and like they creep me out, like proper creep me out. Um, so yeah, no, I I, I actually like Dave Bautista in this. Jason Momoa d- doesn't work for me in this film. He, he's fine, but I, I I don't know. It just feels like Jason Momoa in the Dune film. Yeah, I mean, Stellan Starsgard, you know, as Harkonnen is under so much makeup. Yeah. You know, but you know, my problem. I mean, I like Brolin. I I agree with everything you're saying about Dave Bautista. Um, and I'm not against any of these actors per se. I think Brolin is the one who I've enjoyed the most previously, but I'm not against any of these actors, but it seems like they have nothing to do. Mm. I mean, Ger- Josh Brolin plays Gurney. Gurney and Paul's relationship is much more defined in the David Lynch movie. Yeah. With two and a half hours to shoot half of this plot. Yeah. And he's just like, it's like, how do I distinguish him from the Jason Momoa Duncan character? I mean, what's what's the difference? I mean, literally, they're, they they could swap out for the training sequence. So, I mean, you're told like you know, hey boyo, you know, yeah. but that's you don't feel any kind of connection to them. I feel like I mean, Dave Batista, you're right. I mean, his job is basically to look horrible, to mm. look like that creature, and he does, and that's great. Kudos to you, but none of them are doing. You know, you said, okay, you know, it's it's casting, but I mean, it's anyone who's like, I like I like my action movies 
drained of all common sense and any emotional connection and, you know, as stupid as human beings can possibly make. In other words, I like Aquaman. And yeah. I want to see more of that. So I'm going to go see this weird, you know, Denny Villeneuve, $165 million spectacle of, of rolling dunes and ideas about the Messiah. And how is there an overlap in that audience? And if there isn't an overlap, then you just have to say it doesn't make sense to do $165 million no, dune yeah. because, you know, that's just not right. the same movie as but a this, Jason Momoa but, but that's not how business, that's not how marketing works. So what that you know let's let's be let's be perfectly clear. This was made by Warner Brothers. It's on HBO Max, which is on this. This is the same streaming as you know Aquaman and Justice League and all that stuff, like Jason Momoa's other stuff. What this film has done when they've done this, like if you if you look at the trailers, right? The trailers do not say to you weird sci-fi. Um, you know, and forget that, and nobody. Right, who's watched under the age of 25 has watched 1984 June before watching this, right? So there's no association. There's probably more people have bought the book after to try and understand certain things than, than before. All they've gone is, oh, it's a sci-fi film. It's got some, there's some explosions in it. It's got a cast I like. I'm going to go see it or I'm going to watch it on HBO Max. And, and, and Hans Zimmer basic score. Hans, you know. Hans Zimmer's doing the score. I, you know, Denny, Denny Villeneuve has done Blade Runner. You know, they're trying to badge him as the next or as a, as a sort of as a uh, Christopher Nolan type. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the that's what they're trying to do. And so, I mean, that's that's why you know Warner Brothers courted Christopher Nolan because they want these two directors. Is that they're looking to badge names? They want big name directors, mm-hmm. and the hope is. Anybody that goes in this wanting to see a Jason Momoa movie or an action movie enjoys it for what it is and comes back for part two. Yeah. I mean, look, I accept that marketing is about deceiving, right? Yes. I mean, the goal is to get somebody in the audience and then hope that they like it. And if you've sold it as action, it's really why, you know, I mean, to some degree that's inevitable, but that is a problem when, you know, I mean, so often we look at movies that failed. And one of mm. the reasons they failed is because it was sold as as Y when it's really X. Um, and that's not a problem if, you know, it's a it's an action comedy and the trailers make it seem a little more action heavy than it really is. We all know that's going to happen, right? Yeah. You know, that's fine. But if you're selling a uh, comedy as an action movie or vice mm-hmm. versa, that's when you start getting into trouble and people are going to see one thing and what they're getting is another. And then word of mouth is really bad. This is definitely in that territory where, you mm. know, these, these kinds of casting and, and, and like you point out the, the trailer that just does not belong in the kind of movie that this is, uh, and that this wants to be everything that's good about this is the stuff that, you know, is is the mystical, just sort of like Zendaya narrating over shots of dunes, and like Denny Villeneuve could fill, you know, remake Koyana Scotty with the Dune characters. <laughs> I'm totally down, right? I mean, but 
you can do that for $20 million, you know, and you don't need Jason Momoa and Dave Bautista, you know, you know what I'm saying. I I agree. I totally agree. Um, I think, you know, they are, they are. And I think that's the thing is they're there for a purpose and the purpose isn't always the the script, you know, they're there for another purpose. The thing is, I think as Duncan, I do hope he's fine. You know, I think there are other actors I you know, I can't think of enough time, but there are other actors I think would have been better cast, but it is what it is. Um well, we hate his the... death sequence, and that's gotta be there because that's the Jason Momoa scene. Yeah. But you, you need someone who can fight and look, you know, intimidating. He's got to be the equi- you know, he's almost gotta be the counter to the other reason is like I say, if you've got Dave Batista on the Harkonnen side, you need to have someone of similar size and, and you know um attributes on the good side they never face off that's never going to happen but you know you need that equivalency um one of the things you say like you know one of the things you say about the weirdness of this film and, and and what it is um and what are these actors doing i do think i think like you know that <laughs> this film's relatively emotionless um throughout there's a couple of scenes and they they make it the trailer the bit where like the, the bit where um, Duke Leto says to you know to Paul, um, I, I kind of like that the, the graveyard where he talks about his, his father and he says like you know if you don't you, you you will you will still be the only thing I ever wanted you to be you know my son and he, it's delivered well it's delivered with sincerity, and there's a couple of scenes between um, um, Oscar Isaacs and Rebecca Ferguson sort of you know Leto and Jody, uh, Lady Jessica that really do feel sincere they do feel like a like a couple that trusts each other and they've, they've you know they've had a complicated relationship but they've got this trust and, and i don't know about love but there's definitely something there and you know i feel that there are connections between these people but they're just not very well explored and there just seems a lack of emotionality and it gets less as the film goes on um and that sort of is the, the place that that's taken place or replaced by visuals because you know we'll get onto that. This film is one of the most best looking films. Like there are there are scenes in this film that are just so well shot. Um, you know the, the the whole scene when the the Atreides receive the whatever it is the deed, I suppose for for Arrakis. Mm. You know when the pl- mm. the planet that that ship comes down and the Emperor's off. Proclamation, right? Yeah. And and that's the only time you ever see the guild, uh, the yes. space guild, right? Yeah, and all that—that's really good. When the Bene Gesserit uh, visit Lady Jessica uh, that um, uh, at night, and that you got that ship, and that's all so well lit. Um, and then there's like scenes on Arrakis and stuff, and it, it's just incredibly well shot. There are scenes in this that are phenomenal. Like you know, you would have them like if you captured them as a screenshot, that they're, they're just a piece of art. They're so well done. Amen. Um, and he does that beautifully. And it is striking, but again, like it doesn't for me replace, fully replace, not my investment in the story. And I, I, that I start to feel that. I mean, I, I, I think I carried for, like you said, what you said, about twenty minutes, half an hour, and that was the same for me. And then I started to be a little bit like, this is good. I'm really enjoying it, and I'm loving some of like the fact they're getting some of the technicalities and they're doing stuff. But it. Another scene. I felt like I'm, I'm ripping on this film, but like the other scene that I thought was interesting, but again I had to sort of like stop myself and consider it. 
when they go out in their um, those those sort of dragonfly ships, and by the way, like you said about the designs, I absolutely love the design of those ships. They're, they're fantastic, and to see them started up at the wings again and they start the noise, brilliant, absolutely fantastic. I loved seeing them every time. Um, but they go out and they go to the that, like tanker, the trawler thing that's picking up the spice, mm-hmm. and they've got the sandworm coming towards them, and. It starts off, and I love the fact that they're doing it over a radio. So you've got this sort of like this radio communication going on in the background. They've got like this, 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 uh, the worm spotters, and you've got the guys going like, "Yeah, it's coming in. Uh, you know, you've got to move." Uh, and it's, it's this conversation. It feels so workmanlike that I was like, "That's awesome. I'm really liking that. That's a great touch." And then it gets closer, and things start to go wrong. Like the clamp goes, mm-hmm. and again, I'm into this territory. I'm like. This should feel heart pounding. Like, you know, I should feel like someone's in trouble. I need to feel like there's some real stakes here. Someone's going to die. And they go out and they're doing the, you know, they're doing the rescue and they're saying, like, you know, Leto showing how he cares about the people more than the spice, which is good. Oscar Isaac comes off well. And then Gurney and um, Paul come off. And then Paul's hit by the spice and it gives him that whole vision. And it just sort of stops. And you've got this this vision thing going on, and then and then you sort of saved, but at no point do I ever sort of feel like, oh, there's a worm coming. This thing could potentially, you know, kill the. It never feels like there's tension. There's no tension in that scene. They're trying. It sort of pretends like there is, Mm -hmm. but it's not like you know. Like there are films that like you know. I don't know. I don't know. It just it just fell flat again. Not so much flat. I like what's going on because you're learning information. I'm liking people's performances, but I'm like, shouldn't this feel like a shark's about to come up and kill this person? Shouldn't this feel like Tremors has better sort of tension for these moments than this does? Like you know, the music's sort of doing it, but the the cast just aren't. I don't know. I don't don't really feel like it. Just felt that scene to me. Just sort of like, okay, I get what it's doing, but like. I mean, I agree with you completely, and I feel as if I, I also find like Paul just kind of like stands by the side of the the spice mining craft, and you know, I know he's got spice in the system or whatever, but he seems like so self indulgent, mm. and you know, he's endangering himself and other characters. But again, you don't feel that tension. I mean, and I come away from scenes, and I think, all right, what was this scene about? When you're a screenwriter, you make sure, you know, traditionally you try to make sure that every scene is doing multiple things, right? It's establishing, it's moving the plot forward, but it's also establishing like a relationship that, and we need to make sure that's established because it's going to be important later. What, you know, you were saying like, well, this is, you know, we get to see the sandworm, we get to see that Leto is a good guy. I mean, that's can be handled very quickly. Mm. I, I don't know that that's worth all of that time, and I'm not awed by the spectacle of it. And as you say, there isn't really a lot of tension. You said that, you know, this, um, you know, I was talking about Denis Villeneuve and how how beautiful everything is. I think, amen, absolutely. But what's interesting to me is that, I mean, and, and Nolan sometimes gets pegged for not having a heart, not having, you know, that's too cold and intellectual. I think you're right that this this movie feels that way. It feels strangely flat. But what's interesting to me is that the stuff that works the best is 
totally flat. It's the opening. It's mm. the sort of, you know, esoteric, mystical sort of, you know, I don't know what's going on, but I'm being introduced to a concept or some characters, but it's just really relishing those visuals and you're watching a spaceship take off and you're just like, or a spaceship coming into a hangar and you're like, that's an amazing design. Who's on this spaceship? You know, and it lets itself languish in that sort of lavish visuals and, and the ideas and slowly building this universe. And I found myself, especially watching it the second time, thinking this would almost be better if it were shot as like a series of short stories mm-hmm. where you have like, OK, here's the Benny Jesuit scene where you have, you know, I mean, you don't need to have the sort of Tarantino on screen, like chapter four, the <laughs> Benny Jesuit, you know, <laughs> you don't need to do that. But you can sort of like cut to black and you can give the audience some indication of like, all right, we're not moving the plot forward. We're establishing the Benny Jesuit. You know, we're, we're laying this idea of the Messiah in there, you know, and how the mother has gone against it. And instead, it feels like one thing after another, where even by that point, I'm like, why is this all happening at the same time? You know, yeah. why? It's like, why, we've never had a conversation about your decision to have a son before. Now that you're going to Arrakis, we're going to do this. And so it just, you're by the time you're on that scene, or you're talking about, about saving the spice from the you know, from the sandworm, you know, it, I'm ironically by focusing on the narrative so much and I'm pulled out of the narrative and I don't care anymore about those characters or the plot or, or, I mean, this isn't important, this uh, spice mining particular thing. And I get it. Leto's a good guy and Paul's kind of lost in his head. Like, is that really what I'm supposed to take from that whole scene? It's, a long scene it is and you know it's i don't know if i'm honest i think because here's the thing you're supposed to say that you know duke Leto's a, a good guy but you only get that because and you've already been shown that because he's already mm-hmm. said his intentions now they're just trying to put it into practice fine i'm happy with that you know um but again it's the way it's shot and again maybe it's because i'm expecting certain cliches or certain you know um certain sensibilities. But like when 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 they get back on and he saves all those people, right? Think like again, think of it like Black Hawk Down or some other sort of like military thing where they're coming in and it's the last minute and like the helicopter's just hovering, like we can't land, we've jump on board kind of thing, you know. There's got to be some sort of like desperate tension. They get back onto the little dragonfly thing and then like they're like, where's Paul? And it cuts back to Paul, you know, dicking around by the trawler thing. <laughs> Um, and f- fine, like you say, he's obviously in- infected by the spice, and it shows that. And again, like I'm, I'm quite comfortable that like he's completely out of it, like he's high, like he's, this is the first time he's ingested spice, and it's blown, it's blown him out of the water. And then all of a sudden, like a hand grabs him, and it's Gurney pulling him back. And I'm like, okay, this clearly wasn't a tough decision, but you've said about the relationship between Gurney and and uh, Paul. Like, it should be a moment where, you know, there should be a look between, like, uh, Leto and Gurney. And Gurney's like, yeah, no, look, I'll go. Like, it, this is not a problem. Like, he's just as much as a son to me as he is to you kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And he runs out regardless and then drags him back. And But then when they do fall and the, the, the sand starts to shimmer, and again, I like that. They're sinking in. I love the, the idea. It shows how the planet works. Like, this is what the worms do. 
and then they're running. Um, but it, it never sort of like feels like they shouldn't. It just, I don't know, it feels a bit like you could have done that by throwing a rock at his head from a distance. You know, yeah. just bring, bring him around. Like, I need to see something where it's Gurney's under pressure, like dragging him. Like, he's not, he's still not in his, in his senses. He's having to carry him. He's having to do something. Like, it should feel like there's almost a self sacrifice to save him. But, or, or it's a sort of a, a bonding moment where he's like, you know, right, you know, you save me. Now I get to save you, old man. It, it's cliche, but mm-hmm. like, there's just nothing in that scene. And then they come back and all later says to him is like, you're important. You don't do that again. He goes, all right, sorry. Like, it, 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 it just never feels like it never reaches the, the peaks of emotional drama that I'm looking for. Now I'm not talking about soap opera. I don't want, mm-hmm. but you need some fire in some of this. And it never, like you know, the, the, the scenes with the Atreides never feels like there's fire. It never feels like there's, real conflict in any of this yeah well i mean i agree with you 100 percent, and that's a that's a scene that should be like you know if that's a short story that's a extended short story right i mean mm. it's a, it's an interlude it's not the main plot it's an interlude that is okay here is the planet's dangerous paul's gonna encounter spice for the first time we're gonna see we should see that relationship between gurney and paul or you know we're going to show Leto's a good guy. He actually cares about people. Um, you know, all of that stuff is happening, but because it's not communicated emotionally, and it, it doesn't have to be those cliched lines, it can be a look. Mm. So often an actor is capable of communicating that with a look or, or, you know, gurning, rushing out, the look of concern of, you know, I mean, we just we don't get any of that. And so Paul comes off as, you know, like... A, I don't know some some like self indulgent emo kid. He's spoiled, yeah. He's spoiled. Yeah, that, I mean, Paul, not, none of that that scene doesn't work. No, and this is the thing: like, if you're gonna have Paul come across as spoiled, that's fine. Have him become that sort of like you know next generation of spoiled royalty. But then have that be play out in the finale. That mm-hmm. should, if that's if that's who you're setting up in the first part of your film, in the first third of your film, the first half of your film. That invasion by the Harkonnen, um, that attack and him, that loss should feel even greater mm-hmm. because now he's having to yeah. be forced to live in the desert. It should feel absolutely destroying him, but he just sort of like, like goes along with it. Ah, dad's dead. I guess yeah. we have to live in the desert, you know. I mean, there's <laughs> that nice scene with Lady Jessica in that tent before they pull themselves out, and you know. It's like, oh, conserve your... Well, here's another thing. They're always talking about, like, conserve your moisture. But you see them, you know, it's like, you're not in a still suit. You, you don't have a mask. You're wasting moisture constantly, you know, yeah. because in order to get the actors' faces and all of this. I mean, I did you're talking about... The tent, the- Sorry, I did like the idea of the tent, that the tent yeah. was, was, a, was a version of the still suit. And it's actually, there's a netting inside it that's absorbing the moisture. That was really cool. That That's is cool, very... but where's that moisture going? You know, I mean, where is that being collected? Is moisture evaporating in that tent that there's being, you know, so it's being collected? I, I don't know. I mean, that's okay. I still like the tent scene. I, I like all that. But, you know, they just come out. And, you know, what you're, what you're talking about is sort of like communicating the stakes, communicating the emotion of the scene. It's like we're left with 
we watch this stuff and then we're left with sort of like these bullet points like oh it's a dangerous planet you know and you're left at just kind of like you kind of know that abstractly i mean the but you don't feel it you mm. don't feel invested and that last i mean that last half an hour or 45 minutes even i i feel like is okay we don't want them to just land and run away from Sandworm and be with a Fremen. It's got to be more dramatic than that. And this is the climax, you know, because we, you know, had the attack happen halfway through. Literally, it's right at the halfway point where the attack happens. That's not the climax. So now it's really got to be a hardship to get them through the desert and to the Fremen. So then this happens. So then that happens. But none of it works and and i'm left with sort of like i don't know if it's as a viewer or as a writer it's like i i checked that box i get it it was a hard journey you know it wasn't but i don't feel anything it was it wasn't a hard journey that this they're going through the desert there there's there's something else you talk about axes and looks i want to i'll ask a question in a minute but that thing the one of the things that they do which is interesting is that they say you can't walk normally in the desert because the repeated sort of motion attracts the worms so there's this sort of like the motion of the desert movement like a little dance to get you across the desert and the problem is they sort of they introduce they introduce it in a video which is done as a sort of like a, a hologram and then i and i reckon there's more of this on the curtain room floor because it keeps popping up in the way they move but it looks so stupid on film that you go yeah, they've clearly cut that back, right? Yeah. But at no point do you feel like it's a journey. Um, and again, I know I'm going to make stupid um, comparisons, but even like Lord of the Rings, you know, yeah, they they had wonderful sort of vistas and landscapes in that thing because they filmed in the mountains of New Zealand. And so they had helicopter shots and drone shots and sort of like, look how far they've got to walk. Look how big this is. But it never feels that big in the desert. Like there's never sort of any. It's always all the shots are either close up, like, like you know, mid range close ups, or or full body. There's no like massive distance shots of them as like little specks and going like they're just in this open desert. Like it should feel like an expanse, and it never really does. I, I think it it feels like it's expansive to me. I mean, but like when Paul and Lady Jessica come out of that tent. It's sort of like, okay, well, where are we? We got to get to the Fremen, you know. And you're right about the walking. Like, you never, there are clearly times where they're creating rhythmic sounds yeah. that would attract uh, the sand. Was They don't really follow through. I can deal with the look of that. I mean, I did read a um, review that said it looks like the Ministry of Silly Walks from, yeah. from Python. It, 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 does uh, it, yes, a little it, bit. It, it doesn't for me. It looks like they're doing like the, the moonwalk from uh, some from michael jackson or something but i'm fine with that but i mean like lord of the rings um the all of those three movies there's no sense of journey for me whatsoever it's just x happened then y happened then z happened none of that's important none of it's really imaginative or smart but what it does really well is at the end of every one of those episodes the characters sit down and whine and mope for 30 minutes and so you, they talk about how this is a journey and it's hard, and, but we got to get the ring, the Sora, you know, and they, they have these things where they say, this is hard. And you get the sense of like, okay, even if I'm not invested in 
that dumb episode there. At least I know this is hard for these characters, and and this is a journey that is difficult. It's taking a toll. It needs to feel yeah. like it's taking a toll on them, and it never does. But that's the communication of just the characters have emotion, and yeah. I don't need the characters to sit down for thirty minutes at the end of confronting yet another dumb, you know, obstacle that has no importance. But I do need the characters going through the desert. It's like, you just came out of a tent. Dad's dead. <laughs> yeah. We have nothing. There's no home to go back to. Um, we have to find these Fremen if we're going to survive. Stop crying about dad and yeah. get yourself to the Fremen because I promised him I'd take care of you. She never says that. <laughs> no, there's none of that. It never feels like it matters. But one of the things, we talk about, you talked about actors and looks. And there's a few of them in this. There's a few times where, like, because these are some very good actors. There's some Oscar nominees and lots of the stuff in this, right? One of the ones I find the most weird and really took me by surprise, or at least sort of maybe took maybe take us a bit of a step back. So they come out of that tent and they've both got a, a still suit. They've got the packs and they get up to like a rock surface and they start getting changed. And there's a notion of like, oh, we're going to have to get naked because we're going to have to get dressed. There's this weird look between mother and son, and it's like that. I don't know what that's supposed to convey. It looks really awkward because you just go, "Well, I'll just turn around and I'm gonna get my suit on." But there's this weird look of like, you know, I don't know. I I, I didn't know what to think of it. It was just well, weird. There, it is clearly an incestuous relationship. It is much more. That's much more apparent in the novel. Yeah. Um, that moment made less of an impression on me than the moment when Paul has this vision and he goes to her and he's sort of like kneeling as he says, like, you're pregnant. Mm. And she says, how could you know that? And there's such a intimacy there. I mean, they are, it is the intimacy of lovers. It is absolutely not the intimacy of a mother and a son. Um, yeah. I think that is clearly, clearly, clearly there. Yeah. Okay, good. It wasn't just me. I just thought, no, like, uh, you're not a it... pervert. Those cards definitely show some mother son effing. Okay, that's fine. I was like, maybe I've been watching, you know, uh, I've been watching the wrong videos on Pornhub, but it's just, I've just now got this thing on my head. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, that's fine. It's popular. Yes. <laughs> the, the other thing was, you mentioned it very early on, is the trap. And we said we'll get back to it. So the trap, let's just, I want to walk through this because I haven't read the book for a long time. So I know it's coming, but I can't remember. So the Harkonnen ha are being made by the emperor to hand over power of, uh, of Arrakis to the Atre Atreides. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then when they get there, they've taken all the equipment. So it's not going to work. Spice supply is going to be damaged, blah, blah, blah. And so the, the emperor backs using sort of secret forces that he keeps stashed away somewhere. Those people, those guys in the white suits with the swords. The Sadukar, yeah. He's, it, yeah. He's, the Emperor has his own army that you see very briefly. Yeah. He then supports the Harkonnen to reinvade Arrakis and kill the Atreides. Mm -hmm. Why? I don't understand the what is the trap for? Like, what is the what is the end goal of killing off the Atreides? Are they a threat? Is it because of this prophecy that does the emperor know that Paul Atreides could be the Quisax Hedorat and therefore a, a threat to the the emperor? I, I don't. I, it's not in the film, and I'm never entirely sure if it's in the novel, so I couldn't remember. Yeah, I mean the. 
the I don't remember that aspect. I mean, the weird thing is that the the emperor Shaddam the Fourth is um, you know weak emperor, and the mm. Benny Jesuit have been manipulating him behind the scenes, and clearly he's you know he's comfortable with Har- 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 Harkonnen. Or they call him Harkonnen here. Yeah. Um, you know, which throws me off every time I hear it. But um, you know, so yeah, I mean, I. I think the idea is that the Atreides, House Atreides is on the rise. It's now a threat to uh, the Harkonnen and then also potentially to the Emperor. But it's like, okay, so the Bene Jesuit are, outside of Lady Jessica, you know, they're not invested in the survival of House Atreides. This is a way of sort of like eliminating a rival. Um, and I guess the Bene Jesuit have to be in on it because they're manipulating the emperor, although we don't really see all of this. I mean, my problem in the movie is, is this the, and I guess it's true in the novel too, is this the best way of getting rid of, <laughs> uh, you know, like, all right, well, we have the, dilu- there's one planet on the enti- in the entire universe that has a dilithium crystal mine. None of our yeah. starships can function without it. We're, you know, we're going to give it to the Romulans so that then we can attack and destroy the Romulans. That doesn't seem the most efficient way of doing that. And I know no. the point is like, okay, well, Paul's going to be there. Lita's going to be there. They're not going to have time well, to really put good defenses up, but still you're disrupting the production even more in the novel it is clear that they have hoarded spice and that the market is going to rise as yes. the, you know, as the planet uh, mining is disrupted and that's not here in the movie. But even that, it's like, you could just hold that shit back, right? You know, you're yeah. OPEC in one guy. Just yeah. hold that shit back. Yeah. That was, it is sort of in the film. There's a, there's a drop line later on where uh, uh, Duke Harkonnen says, we are now back where we're supposed to be. We've got control. And we've actually got the full stock in reserve. And we can now control the price increase. Like he, They literally talk about that for, for a very brief second. Like, okay, cool. That's your motivation. But like you say, you could have done that on the planet anyway. But one of the problems I had with this plan is this film actually presents you with a better alternative to what could have happened. When um, the attack happens and they take Leto prisoner, uh, the doctor that betrayed him gives him a tooth full of some gas. And so he puts it in. He says, if you bite down on this, it will kill you, but it will also kill everybody around you sort of thing so he does that and it kills like a lot of people to the extent of like some of us have to come in in like hazmat suits and they find uh lord harkonnen up on the yeah baron harkonnen up on the ceiling um so why didn't they send a spy (laughs) they even try it in the film that the harkonnen leave a guy in a wall and they've got the little mini dragonfly things with the with the that can get through the shield um you know like a little pin there are other ways of doing this where you could go, well, you could just send someone to Caladan and like whilst they're having dinner as a guest, kill them off with a gas. Like it presents you with a better alternative in the film. And that's a real problem because you just go, well, this plan's stupid then. How yeah. much did this how much did this cost as well? Because there must be a cost for move like Lord Harcon uh, the Baron Harcona must be going like, so I've got to pay. Because they also say there's a great point in this where they ask the guy whose eyes roll back in his head because he uses spice to do calculations. How much does it cost? How much does it cost them to come and deliver this this uh, the deed or whatever the the declaration? And he makes the calculation. 
So then they're thinking, oh, so there's a cost to space travel. So how much does it cost the Harkonnens then to gather all their stuff up and leave to then come back and invade and, and go, to, go to war? Like, <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, Dune has the central problem, which is that I love all of these themes. I, you know, what I love about it are the the visuals of the movie. I mean, I love the ideas. I love some of the language, the poetry of it. I mean, I, I don't especially enjoy, you know, reading Herbert's novels, but I love in the films the sort of poetry, the the visual mm. poetry and the themes and all of this. But you know, as you explain more and more. The problem with the Lynch film is that nothing is explained and you can't possibly explain this complex universe <laughs> in, you know, a 10 second uh, monologue. Um, there's no way to do it. This movie sort of does it over the course of an hour um, at, in one scene after another. Curiously, it avoids the, you know, Irulan sort of, you know, history text for the most part. Um, but, you know, if... If that that is the stuff that that works for me, Dune has the central problem where the more you explain it, the more totally absurd and nonsensical it really is. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's so much stuff that, you know, I mean, you know, like you mentioned this calculator guy. I mean, that's a really cool concept, right? Like the idea is that there's been the uh, Butlerian Crusade, and you know. Uh, AI has been a problem, and so um, we sort of like Battlestar Galactica, right? This is an excuse to de-technology, you know, to mm -hmm. lower the level of technology so that there you can't be AIs, right? So there are no robots, no androids, nothing like that. But this guy, we're able to have this sort of like class, medieval class of people who can do this. Okay, that's cool. I want the short film about that. Give yeah. me... Give me 10 minutes of, or five minutes of, of just Denny Villeneuve doing ideas about that dude and, and this whole class of people. Like, that's fascinating to me. I want that. The more you explain stuff and the more the irony is the more that you get into this and it becomes more than that. And you actually have to understand the plot or understand the universe. It's really rather silly stuff. Mm. I mean, I'm going to get crucified for saying that, but... No, no, I agree. Because I think one, one of the things, one of the comparisons I sort of felt watching this was was Game of Thrones. Mm. And I actually thought, I was thinking, when that attack comes, you know, when they, when the, the Harkonnens attack Arrakis, I was like, this would be, this would be the end of a good season. Mm-hmm. Like there's a shot, there's a great shot at the end of this film. Uh, not the end, well, it's not the end, but after that, they they they've escaped and they come out of the uh, the flying dragonfly thing, and they run up a dune and they look back and there's the burning city in the distance. Yeah, that's the end shot of season one. Like you're leaving them stranded in the desert, on their lowest point, and you're going like, oh Christ, I've got to come back for season two. Like what the what's going to happen? And then mm -hmm. your first half is like the first two episodes is them, you know, searching for and finding the Fremen and then having to deal with that. That's and that's all I could think about is like and that if you were to do like a 10 hour, right, 10 episodes mm -hmm. outreach leading up to that moment. And all you had to deal with is all that stuff like you could explore all this kind of stuff. 
you know, yeah. you the character. You could provide further explanation as to why they had to do this plan. Well, we've got to do this plan because there are other families. And if we do it, you know, if we just kill them off, it's too direct. That causes tension and sort of like will cause civil war, which they sort of address a little bit. But like, OK, so there needs to be it, then we need to engineer a situation that feels like we have to intervene. So we've given them um, Arrakis to the Atreides and they have failed, but then they don't want to give it back. So we're now going to send the Harkonnen in to, to retake it. You know, like you could do well, all this. I mean, two two things about what you've just said. One is the sort of inescapable feeling watching this that this would have been better as an HBO miniseries, right? Yes. That it needs more room to breathe, mm-hmm. and even if it takes some liberties and, and goes into you know, I mean, look, there are so many books to draw upon. Mm. There's tons of stuff that you can do, um, even if it, you know, do a ten episode for a season. You could do all of that stuff. You wouldn't feel as much time pressure. I mean, the other thing is, so that's point one. I mean, it's a bad sign when you spent $165 million to film half of a freaking book. And it's filled with all of the talent in the world. Amazing people, people who you and I respect the hell out of. And you come out of it thinking, yeah, I kind of wish that were a miniseries, you know, like I wish they had just done this for lower budget or, you know, same budget stretched across 12 hours or something on HBO. That's a bad sign. Mm -hmm. And and I hate to say it. But the second thing is, gets back to my point about having a narrative structure to the first half, that it's not just the first half and stop. You've got to give it some sort of narrative structure. And that look back at the burning city. You're right. I mean, that strikes me, too, as that is the end of the climax, right? Yes. And, you know, what I would say is in a in a 10-episode first season that does this, the first half of Dune, that needs to be the end of episode nine, mm. where you say, oh, my God, what's happened? You know, and then episode 10 is getting to the Fremen and, you know, like, that's the end of your downward arc, Right where there's nothing left to go back to. I mean, this movie needs to do that, where you see the burning city, and then the goal needs to be, how do we get them to the Fremen and get, you know, get to that same point at the end of this movie with 10 minutes? Or, you know, how do we just make that feel like it's the denouement to this action? And instead, you have the climax in the middle of the film. I don't really feel like it's a great fight. I, you know, you see a lot of dropping of bombs and burning of buildings and, you know, armies kind of fighting each other. But I don't have a sense of stakes the way I want to. Mm-mm. That needs to be the climax. Skip all of the stuff with the, you know, the water, you know, horde and, you know, and Jason Momoa sacrificing himself. And, you know, I mean, if you have to cut the fight with the Fremen, um, you know, but get everything after that shot of the city burning you know, fade to black, everything else is a 10-minute denouement, and then you'll have more time for these characters and really exploring this stuff. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. You know, that's exactly what it should be. Like, you know, that I thought that was the climax, you know, or they escape, that, you know, they go through the sandstorm and, you know, that thing of, of um, Paul and Lady Jessica escaping and all that kind of stuff, like, and then they climb up and they see that burning thing. Like, I was like, okay, that's this is it. You know, we're coming to the end. 
And then, like I say, it doesn't. <laughs> but because it's sort of like, it's like a, as you say, it's like a sidewards transition. Instead of being a decline, instead of being that fall from grace or that fall um, to that bottom moment for them to climb back from, it never feels like that. It, it just feels like a sidewards transition. Well, we lived in this city and now we're going to live in the desert. Mm-hmm. You know, ruhaha, carry on. It, 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 and that's sort of the, the problem. I think, but that comes from the coldness of this film, this lack of emotion. Um, and well, and, and, it, yeah. and also the structure. I mean, you know, I'm all for breaking up narrative structure and new kinds of narrative and, you know, throw the three-act structure out. You know, mm. okay, that's fine. I'm all for that if it works. But, you know, our reaction to that, the shot of the burning city is this feels like the climax. And then and then everything after it just feels like one thing after another. You know, the audience is conditioned to react a certain way. And when you have two additional, you know, whole arcs, little, you know, acts after that, the mm. audience sort of has to conclude and they, you know, if you know the book at all, you're like, okay, well, they got to get to the Fremen, right? You know? Oh, where this story's going to end. But we got to resolve this bullshit we're watching right now before we really start getting up to the Fremen. And I'm just thinking, yeah, none of this is, is working for me. And I'm, I'm watching the clock now. And that's the thing, I'm watching the clock. That's the important thing. It's like, because I'm now going like, okay, well, the ending's coming. You know, it's sort of, do I, if I get this on, and I will get this on Blu-ray. We'll get to the final thoughts of it because we have slates on it. But like, if I watch this again or I get this on Blu-ray or whatever, and I have it on home media, there will be a point where I'm like, that that final act or that final section, like, there's a whole section of that where I'm like, I'm going to fast forward through this. Like, right? I'm I'm going to go from this point to this point, and I'm going to get to the meeting the Fremen and having that fight, just so I can see it and get to the end of the film because there's no, there is nothing in that section that need that 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 gives me anything you know narratively emotionally um you know um adrenaline there's nothing there to tell me the only thing is they introduce the worm you know they get you get to see them that moment with the massive sandworm when it comes up sort of like you know sniffs him like a puppy and then buggers off like all right you get that so he's now you're seeing that he's got an affinity with the planet or are you but you see like, you know it's yeah it's again it's a great shot it was in the trailer but it doesn't tell me a whole hell of a lot in the grand scheme of things because i'm too busy talking going well hopefully this is leading to something big because you know i've already had this big explosion bit um (laughs) and then another one and then another one you know one of the things i really 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 hate is the like multiple climax um that we get in like actioners now. And mm-hmm. I don't mind it if it's done well, right? You know, like we we killed the demon, but there was this other problem, you know. Okay, you can do it well. I like the denouement. I mean, everything's about that. But and it, and if that has more conflict, that's fine. But it's this sort of like oh, okay, another fighty fighty climax with Jason Momoa after what I feel like is the main climax. Okay, gotta fight the Fremen, dude, you know, like, I mean, it's not sold well, and that scene with the sandworm, I mean, I'm the, I'm a big fan of Dune, I want to see that sandworm, I mean, mm. I, that's the money shot, man, and by the time you show me the sandworm, 
like that sounds so perverted. By the time <laughs> show me the by the time you show me the sandworm, by the time you show me the sandworm, I'm like, yeah, that's a sandworm. Yeah, I guess this is finally gonna end soon. You know, I've been so out of the narrative for so long that I'm like, yeah, you know, I could have done without that. Yeah, the thing about the fighting though is. You can have that climax in the middle or like, you know, later in the, the towards the second half. And again, it's mainly bombs dropping. There's no actual fighting. There's very little in there the way is. of fighting. There's a little bit, but it's it's mainly bombs the... dropping. And yeah, you, it's, it's inside. You see Jason Momoa sort of takes on those people and there's bits and pieces, but it's not like a pitched battle, is it? Like mm. you see Gurney run into battle and you see a little bit and then it cuts away to the sort of the inside. And I'm fine with that because, again, I kind of like that. I'm like, okay, cool. You're going to focus on specific bits. It's got multiple, you know, this isn't just happening in one place. It's going on throughout the throughout the, the city or throughout the building. I'm digging that. All that stuff's actually kind of good. Um, I was thinking of things like uh, Black Hawk Down or sort of like 13 Hours or th- those sorts of films. I'm like, okay, you know, you, you've, you've sort of tapped into this sort of military kind of movie. I'm, I'm okay with that. It's looking good. But then, like you say, if you're going to do these other things, you need to be able to present a fight. You know, not just choreography, like you say, because you know, the fight choreography is, it, and this become, this is a problem at the moment, I think, with a lot of films. But fight choreography, you know, it needs to be good, it needs to be solid, but it needs to have stakes. It needs to have a purpose. It needs to tell a story. Um, one of the things, and this is a this another weird analogy. When I used to do wrestling many years ago in the when my knees worked, um, <laughs> one of the things and that was all we were, we were, you know, as well as all the, the moves, one of the things we were always beaten into was every match has to tell a story. Doesn't matter who wins, doesn't matter what you do in the match, you've got to tell a story. Like, if you go out and the crowd doesn't like the good guy, then the bad guy don't work. And if the crowd don't like the bad guy, you know, they dis- if they don't dislike the bad guy, then the, the good guy don't work. Like, you've got to play it up and you've got to tell a story. Like, is it big guy versus little guy? Is it is, is this match, a, you know, is it a, a grudge match? Is this going to lead to something? Is one of them injured and, I'm, you know, the, the bad guy's going to play on that? Is it going to be that kind of thing? Is it going to be campy? Is it going to be this? Well, you always had to have that in mind of, like, this is, otherwise it's just, it's just moves, Mm-hmm. It's just moves, you know. Those moves have to tell you something, or they have to be leading to something. You have to feel tension from doing so. And I feel that like fight choreography in films at the moment has got to a point where the moves are, are amazing. Like some of the the athleticism in fights and stuff in in modern action films is incredible. And the bar's been set incredibly high. You know, you see these things of martial arts coming in, or just sort of like really cool well choreographed fights excellent but sometimes i think the focus is so so much on the moves that they lose the storytelling and i feel like if you ever watch a jackie chan film from sort of like mm. back in the day he knew it like I'm, I'm, bruce lee got this as well there's martial arts got they knew it like you couldn't just go through and beat everybody up you had to take a punch you had to do this you had to do that you had to you know you were talking about the narrative arc. Like every fight has a, a mini narrative arc, and and one of the problems is the fights that should that, that that final fight and that corridor fight with Momoa. There is a narrative to tell there. There's a story to tell. 
you know, it, it, to go the the full distance, if I was to go the other way, the cliche way, you know, it's that thing of like um, being cut multiple times, you know, sort of like, you know, Momo has been, he's got like 12 knives in his back and he's got like, you know, he's bleeding out, but he's still last man standing. He's still there. That kind of, you know, that's the extreme. Mm-hmm. But you need that narrative. Otherwise, it's because this film is just moves. And those fights are just moves. They are impressive moves. Don't get me wrong. Hugely well choreographed. And I'd say the action's averagely shot, but it it it, it lacks it lacks narrative. Like they don't tell if they're not going to tell me if they're not going to give me it through exposition, as you said, then they need to show it me in through the actors. And I think there's some real major beats missing that could have made that last act really hit home. About loss and about fighting back, you know that sort of like that upswing, as you say. And I just think it's a real that that's what where I sort of feel the, the most bored. Mm. Yeah, I mean it's a strange thing to feel bored at a hundred and sixty-five million dollar movie that looks beautiful beyond belief, and mm. yet I totally understand. I mean, you're right about sort of narrative and and fights telling a story i mean you know like okay i'm sacrificing myself for you sure fine i mean but make us feel it i mean it's that final fight with the fremen i mean it's a one-on-one there's a decline from the fight in the city to you know the jason momoa fight to fighting one dude you've got to sell that you know i mean Mm. i'm killing somebody i've got to kill to save my mom and stay alive and all of this. I mean, it, you know, doesn't, I mean, narrative isn't about one thing after another happening. It's about what it means and why yes. should we care? And I think that, I mean, you look at like Blade Runner 2049 and the narrative is a mess. I mean, mm. the narrative has so much going on. It does not follow traditional structure. But for the most part, it works. And all mm. those little narrative cul-de-sacs are fascinating and interesting. But they're fascinating and interesting almost because they don't have to tell a story. They don't have to hit the traditional notes. Um, and you can sort of, let, you know, really take your time and, and feel them out. This sort of starts great. I mean, I'm fine with, I'm fine with no narrative. I'm fine with, you know, if it works. Mm. But if you're going to tell the narrative when you get into it, it's got to be about something. You've got to have those emotional stakes and you've got to communicate why should we care instead of just, well, I guess they have to do this now. And it is such a bummer to feel that about, I mean, not that I don't feel that about blockbusters all the time, all the time. Like, okay, here's the climax, you know, okay, I guess you got to, you know, defeat this dude. You know, I wonder how long I'm going to be sitting here, you know, watching, <laughs> watching fifty million dollars on the screen wasted in something I just don't care about. The thing is, if you were to take this as as right, we know this ends, and for spoilers that no one does know where this ends, so you know, take your earphones out now for a second. But we know this ends with uh, Paul. You know, he becomes. I'll put it in inverted commas the Messiah. You know. Uh, the Kwisatz Haderach or the Muad'Dib um, kind of figure for Fremen, and he take he leads those people against 
the Harkonnen on Arrakis. Like he becomes that leader figure for good or ill. Like that will you know we'll save for the next story. This is still from beginning to end of that whole story, and when it goes into June Messiah and all the others, mm-hmm. is the story of a Messiah figure. It's the history of this Messiah figure that, again, spoilers, ends up ruling an empire. This is their this is their saga mm-hmm. from, you know, basically that that and that low point is the turning point of going to, you know, if you were to see, mm-hmm. you know, if you were to watch a biopic, and I know, you know, one of those things, some sort of biography film of like a musician or an actor or a boxer or a sports, box is a good example. There'll be some sports, you know, film where they're like, you know, you're not good enough to be the champ. And then they go on to become the champ and the greatest champion of all time. What like those things. If that's the turning point, if the killing of that man becomes the turning point of this saga to him becoming the emperor of the Imperium and leading the Fremen, it should feel like something. I should feel like I'm watching some epic journey of this 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 spoilt kid's life in a palace to becoming this great leader. And I do not feel that at all. And that's why yeah. I think, and, and that's the, that. That's why I think that last forty-five minutes is so misplaced. Because if, if you're gonna, like, you know, like you say, get them to the Fremen, but stop there. Don't, don't give me that journey, or take them to their low point and leave them there for me to come back. But if you, you, you need to be telling this. If you're telling this epic saga, you know, fucking, I feel more when the door closes on Michael Corleone at the end of The Godfather. Mm-hmm. The good, the good man that's gone bad, you know that sort of. T- if you if you're going on that story of the Godfather and all this other stuff, and tell me that story. But this, this, I don't know. They just this doesn't feel like this. The end of this film feels like some soft kid who's been saved. Yeah, no, it it, it does, and who who is suddenly a, a ninja perfect martial artist, you mm-hmm. know, against against somebody who you know we hear. Uh, is it Duncan, you know, brought him the closest he has to death, you know, yeah. or, or it's, it's anyway. Yeah, I think it is Duncan. But yeah, I mean, you're right. And there's this talk about you have to die for, you know, Madib figure to be. Okay, well, that should feel like a death. Um, not just I'm killing a guy, but like I have lost everything. I mean, this is mm. the classic, you know, downward arc. And you don't have to go to wrestling for this. You can go to, you know, every academic, inventor, all of these stories, they reached a point at which, you know, like you've lost everything. You know, you had to move because you were going to go to debtor's prison or whatever. And then you came to America or you moved out west and you, you know, reinvented yourself and, you know, somehow you clawed yourself back up. And that's a great story. You know, it's a classic American arc, right? I mean, this is that story Mm. You've lost, you know, but it, I don't feel like it's the scorched earth. I don't feel invested in that. And that is such an obvious, obvious way of making part one feel like it's a complete story. Mm. Not that the story's really done, but that it's taken characters to the end of their arc. And you've killed off a bunch of characters. I mean, the cast for part two is going to be, you know, similar, but a bunch of characters are gone. A bunch of characters are suddenly more important. Okay. I mean, it should feel like. You've gone somewhere. And this is a movie that 
gives you such visuals and has so much to recommend it. And yet I don't feel like it's really taken me somewhere. And yeah. by the end, you know, there's also the problem of like, I guess you stumbled into that same tribe of Fremen that Duncan went out and visited, <laughs> right? Like, how did you land? They don't know where this is. Uh, you know, not to not to be that guy who's like, what is the geography of Arrakis? You know, I don't need, I'm not that guy, but I need a sense of, you know, I mean, at that point, I'm so checked out that I don't even give a shit. Mm. You know? Yeah. No, I think I think you're right. I think we're com- we're coming sort of to the end um, of this. Um, so I think we'll, we'll round it out with some final thoughts because what? Yeah, I think there's, there's, I think we're both coming to the conclusion though that like there's good at the beginning and then there's bad at the end. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so as they say, it's a game of two halves. Uh, <laughs> to continue the sports yeah. analogies. But I mean, this is a movie that I want. I I want to succeed, even mm. with. I mean, I I still think this is you know it's better better than average. You know, it's like a six out of ten, um, for me. And I would say that it's 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 a visual feast. There's a lot to recommend it. I you know Hans Zimmer. I mean, I have problems where I'm like, is that in the scene or not? Yeah. You know, but I mean, it's a great score, great direction, great performances for the most part. And and yet it it seems less than some of its part parts. Having said that, I want this to succeed. I'm so glad mm-hmm. that part two is being made, and I and I love auteur cinema. I love that Warner's is is funding this. I still don't understand why, <laughs> even as a Dune fan. But um, it's just such a strange thing, you know. It's one of those things where I admire it more than I enjoy it. Yes. I'm very much the same. I think I came out of this having enjoyed it. Um, I, you know, I thought it was good. I thought visually, like you say, it's stunning. There are scenes in this that, like, it was shot on location. Like they went and shot this in um, North Africa or you know somewhere like that. Like it looks Abu and stuff. Middle, yeah, it looks great and benefits from that. And sets were built, and it feels physical, and it you know it it has a quality that I absolutely adore. Um, and so I'm I'm for all that. Like I support that. And not yourself. I want this film to succeed. And the opening of this film, like the first hour, I'd say, like you know, that that, that opening is great, and it starts to, but as you introduce more characters and bits and pieces, like I'm all for it. Like that first hour is solid, really solid. You know, you get to learn about the Atreides and the Harkonnens and all the different characters and stuff. Like it's really good. Um, it starts to sort of wobble when they arrive on Arrakis. Um, and it's still good. It's still I'm still enjoying it, but I'm starting to notice uh narrative and emotional sort of like things where I'm like, okay, I'm sort of like you said, I'm checking out a little bit. This scene's going on too long. It, it looks great, but whatever. And then I'm sort of jumbled up again. Oh, we've got the the invasion and I'm on board with that. And it's been some of the bits keep me interested. And then yeah, I just sort of like peter out. Like, it sort of just comes to an end. I remember I sat in the cinema, like, after this film ended for a couple of minutes watching the credits. And there were people that were, there was two groups of people. There were the people that were like, oh, my God, this is this is cinema. You know, this is what I've been waiting for. And like, oh, great. I'm so glad you find it. And then there was just some old guy in front of me that just went, what the fuck was that? <laughs> and left. And you're like, 
yeah, I'm somewhere between you two. You know, like mm-hmm. there's moments where I'm like, yeah, I'm all in on this. And there's other bits where I'm like, I have no idea why these choices were made. Yeah. Um, I do want this. I'm very excited for, for, for part two. It's got the great cast again. You know, it's, there's still some good people. I think there's so much more story to tell. It's got an interesting, this story has an interesting endpoint. Like it's not traditional save your story so i'm interested where you know how they do it and how people take it as well yeah well it's about ideas i mean i you know look i mean i'm not you know i'm i'm not the the biggest you know fan of alien you know as a franchise Mm. but i want it to do well because it has some ideas in it and you know i'd like a franchise that's not just kitty kitty you know I mean, I'm or Mar or owned by, you know, I guess it is owned by Disney, but not, you know, it's not Marvel superheroes. I mean, you know, I I am invested in the idea of a science fantasy franchise that's about these big ideas. I think that's phenomenal. You are misremembering the time because watching it again, I was watching it on HBO Max and I've got the uh, I'm constantly sort of pausing it because I'm watching it Mm -hmm. by myself this time. And. I can tell you, I mean, it's a two and a half hour movie. At one fifteen, we're deep. We're already in the assault on the, you know, on the. Really? Uh, okay. Yeah. So, well, I remembered it the same way that you did, and when I I got to the point where I was like, oh, this is just so brilliant. And I was like, yeah, you know, here's the fight, you know, with uh, Duncan or whatever. Here's the, you know, the the Benny Jesuit, you know, with a box of pain and all that. Mm. And it just goes on. This is going on a little long. Let's see. Let's see where I am. It's like, oh, that, you know, this is early. Yeah. I mean, that stuff that we like <laughs> so much is really yeah. not that much material. And I and I just, I don't know. I mean, I wish that that segment were longer and really the whole, you know, Attack on the City is really the third act and you follow yeah. a more traditional structure. But bless them. I can't wait for Sisterhood of Dune. I want this to be a franchise. Yes, I want this a, to succeed. It's HBO I, series, isn't it? Yeah, and I and, and supposedly Denny Villeneuve is going to direct the first uh, episode, whether he does or not. He's had input. Uh, the screenwriter on that was pulled off of that to do Dune Part Two. So, I mean, there's connection there. I want this to be successful, and I also want Time Warner to succeed. I want the idea of getting great directors and giving them more, not carte blanche, but a lot more, you yes, know, uh, freedom. I want that instead of the cookie cutter approach. I agree. No, I, I, you know, I like this idea that, like, you know, do I like everything that Christopher Nolan's done? No, I don't. But I'll, every single film I will give a go. I haven't seen Tenant yet, um, but I know that I will. The moment I get an opportunity to see it, I will. Same with Denny Villeneuve. I love his back catalogue. I think he's done some amazing films. And not just Blade Runner uh, 2049. I think Prisoners is great. Like, legit good film. It's an amazing film. So yeah, I like this idea of auto cinema. More than that, though, like you say, being the sort of the sci-fi nerd and, and you know, doing what we do, I hope that studios see this, and hopefully it is a success enough that studios go, oh, maybe that's the next thing. Maybe that's what we're ready for. Some, you know, and they'll reach to other properties that are a bit more, um, you know, thought-heavy. Maybe we'll see some other sort of like. Isaac Asimov or Philip K. Dirk, you know, maybe, you know, I say foundation has just been made for Apple. So maybe, you know, this, there is a, a, a bit of a change coming that they're like, actually, we can do more ideas, heavy sci-fi and people will take it. So fingers crossed that there will be, you know, some things, some really good things will come from this. 
Amen. We're in the exact same boat. <laughs> yes. Yes. Unfortunately, it's a boat off June. Um, so, uh, but anyway, ladies and gentlemen, there you go. We've done a bonus episode for you. Um, and I hope you've enjoyed us talking about a sort of a film that's recently been released. Uh, and I hope you've seen it before we talked about it because we st- we spoiled the shit out of that one. Um, but if you like what we do, and obviously come and join us, uh, the rest we you know we're, we're uh, banging our way through season three. Uh, we've got some great films coming up, um, and uh, we are already working on our interseason sort of like schedule for what we're going to do straight after season three, and uh, it'll come out soon. Uh, we have got a massive, massive project that we're working on for season four uh some amazing films in there so you know keep your keep your ears on to what we're doing uh and you'll see and if you really like what we're doing do the usual things go find us leave a review uh and find us on patreon uh w.patreon.com slash 20 cg media uh julie and i do a whole thing on there about the twilight zone on a weekly basis and there's all kinds of other podcasts and stuff on there as well so go check that out it'll be links below as always uh, Julian, thank you so much for talking Dune Part One with me. It's been my honor. And by the way, that is the title. It's Dune Part One, whether it's comma or colon. It is not Dune. Anyone saying the title is Dune is incorrect. This yes. on-screen title is Dune Part One. Yes, not on poster though. I'll have you know. Yeah, go back to marketing and deception. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's true. But then it's... I want more. I want more Jason Momoa kicking ass. I mean. Yeah, well, Aquaman 2 is coming soon. I'm sure you're looking God. forward to that one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, this looks like Citizen Kane. You know, I mean, I'll watch this a million times compared to that. Excellent. Well, maybe one day I'll get you to watch it. I'll see if we can make it a sci-fi film. Uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much, and we'll uh, talk to you again soon. streams.